0: So, the other evening when I began this retreat, I read you a beautiful writing by the late Reverend Howard Thurman, an African-American man who founded the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco in 1944. And um, he... It was the first church in this nation that uh, kind of got together the, an interfaith, interracial, and intercultural community. So it's a very, it was a very important, he was a very important man and he got together something very important for our culture. So I'd like to read it again to you because it continues to inspire how my own heart needs to incline towards equanimity more. And it actually, um, what he said, inspired the title of this retreat, Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. It's from his collection of meditations entitled Deep is the Hunger. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair, and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Seeing the world with quiet eyes is something that I try to attend to the best way I can in my life. And his uh, question, how may we work in the world, etc., etc., courageously and intelligently continues to be kind of like a koan for me. Like, how can I keep doing that? So when I read this part about seeing the world with quiet eyes, I realized it was really one of the subjective experiences that we actually feel when we are in a place of equanimity. It's like we're not seeing the world with reactivity, with aversion because, or fear, because we don't like it, or we or attachment because we want it to be different than it is. But we're able to face things more as they are, and therefore be more intelligent about how to respond, because we're really taking it in as it is, rather than how we would like it to be or how we don't like it. So it's a calm inner quiet, this equanimity, when we really see the world with those kind of quiet eyes. It's a balance, an inner balance, an inner quiet. At the same time, it's really staying connected with what's actually happening. Rather than that kind of distant, far... um, disconnection that sometimes people think equanimity is all about. But it isn't that at all. So um, it's really important to talk about equanimity and to ponder on it to be able to give you a clearer view of what it is. So when you hear that word and when you understand its workings in your own mind and heart, maybe it will help you to incline there more in yourself and cause less suffering for ourselves and, and the world, too. So tonight I'd like to talk about equanimity as one of the four divine abodes, one of the four Brahma-viharas. I mentioned that uh, Aya Kema, one of my teachers, um, a nun, uh, she's passed away already, called it a divine emotion, along with loving-kindness, uh, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity being uh, one of the most, or the most powerful of these four. Because it's said that it makes the other three more powerful. And uh, this heartfelt connection with the spacious balance that includes really deep wisdom enables us to see things more clearly. And when we see things more clearly, we're more liable to have a sense of real loving-kindness, unconditional loving-kindness for the things that we view in the world, people that we view. We're able to see things as they are with immeasurable impartiality. This is something that I heard from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is beautiful. Those words, immeasurable impartiality it uh, connotes like a, a deep inner balance. But it's so wide. It, it's like beyond the confines of what we call this world. It's, it's immeasurable. For example, it allows, um, in the suttas, it says it allows compass- compassionate action to come forth as very pure and clean, a very pure and clean force of action without anger. It might have the strong energy, but it doesn't have to come from aversion or hatred. It can be a strong force. We've seen that and witnessed that in people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Aung San Suu Kyi of of Burma. So it gives you an example of what a felt sense of it is like, you know, when you have that bigness, that wideness, that immeasurable spaciousness in your heart, but you can see the world with impartiality. It's not like you're pushing something away or holding on tightly to some righteousness that we have about how it should be. So there are ways to recognize the terrain of equanimity and its opposites also. So tonight I'd like to talk about the the full terrain of equanimity by giving you some examples and some descriptions of its opposites. The opposite being, the direct opposite being reactivity. And I'll fill that out more later. It has two parts, attachment and aversion. And the near opposite is called apathy. It's when we're not really connected at all But it's like, you know, we can be really cool, we can really look cool, but we're not connected. It's just a real distance from what's happening, from what's really happening. So it's an important subject to reflect upon because the culture we live in and the accessibility and speed of information that I talked about the other night... The news in the world, for example, can continuously trigger reactions of judgment and fear and blame and self-righteousness and terror and anger. And of course, it, it's all about that that happens in the world. So of course, it, it triggers that in us. So how can we quiet that down so we can see more clearly and not see through those lenses of terror in ourselves when we look out upon the world? You know, it's a big koan, it's a big question. How can we see it more clearly and come to it more with a greater purity of action? So to distance ourselves from what we're lured in in our consumer society and the speed of information, where this... All this news comes to us and triggers us in ways that we can't help because we're human, of course. Um, Our society encourages us with an obsession of wanting and accumulating, feeding and normalizing addiction and craving. I mentioned the other night how there was an advertisement that said, increase your desire. I mean, this was supposed to be really good, right? Um, With all those hormones and everything that we can take for that. Um, so and there's entertainment of all kinds to escape and avoid the unpleasant feelings we have inside. So it really deters us from experiencing real equanimity because we're constantly lured towards lured towards uh, obsession of wanting or the opposite of getting away from what we don't like by... Um, you know, going towards um, distracting ourselves. Somewhere in the news a few years ago I read about how we live in a culture of escapism, running away from the unpleasant and running towards the pleasant. This is that wheel, that we samsaric wheel that we live on, that the Buddha talked precisely about is, how do we get off this wheel? And one of the major things is to see things as As they really are, instead of how we want them to be or how we don't want them to be. There's an interesting comment that I was, as I was rereading my notes and um, some stories about Manindra and a chapter of the book about Manindra. um, Gee, I can't remember it just now. Um, I'll remember it and tell you. But it was all about these paramis, and uh, uh, paramis are those virtuous forces that carry us across the sea of samsara and into a sea of more inner peace. And he said, the end of vipassana is not happiness. The end of vipassana is equanimity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just to be able to hold both, to be able to hold the joys and the sorrows of the world and not react to either one of them with um, a defilement. Something that's going to kind of pull us into more suffering, but to really just see it clearly for what it is. So it's understandable that we feel agitated, depressed, and vulnerable and anxious in our in our times. And I really um, admire those people, and I try to do it myself to stay away from the news, you know, to give myself uh, a, a fast from being connected to one of my de- any one of my devices for at least a day, because there's constantly this news news that's triggering us to either want or to hate, <laughs> you know, or to get fearful. So the Buddha talked about um, one reason for our vulnerability is that we live in this world of reality, which has these eight worldly conditions, the eight. Uh, winds of change, that we're constantly feeling the flux of, the four pairs of vicissitudes that um, I will um, tell you about. And this is exactly what the Reverend Howard Thurman was talking about when he mentioned the vicissitudes in, in his beautiful talk. We experience in our lives praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And I might add a couple more that are major, you know, birth and death. Right? We experience that and it it brings us into this world of this constant vulnerability. You might say that the first noble truth is not that there is the truth of suffering. That's the, what the first noble truth translates to mean. Dukkha There is the truth of suffering. But we might translate to mean in our own kind of psychological times, sociological times. There is vulnerability in, our, in ourselves, there's a sense of vulnerability, and in the world because of these outer conditions we're constantly faced with. So we like to be praised, of course, I'll go over those two. We don't like to be criticized or blamed, that's, that's one of our vulnerabilities, we like to experience gain more and more, and we don't like to feel loss. That's human. We want approval. We don't want disapproval. We don't want, we don't like rejection. We like pleasure. We don't like pain. These are all natural hu- um, expressions of how we are as a human being. And how can we go through life without you know, getting pulled this way and that way? because of the the experiences that we have as a human being, the natural experiences that we have. How can we um, rest what we call rest the mind before it falls into extremes? It's another description of equanimity. Resting the mind and heart before we fall into extremes. External conditions are constantly affecting our thoughts, our emotions, our mental states, our attitudes, And we're so um, drawn into what's out there, the object of what's distracting us and causing these inner triggers. And coming into a place like this, we learn to be with what goes on inside of ourselves in reactivity to the outer world. Or sometimes it's reactivity to our own thoughts, actually. Um, A friend of mine who's a yogi said that it was very interesting that what she learned about meditation, in meditation, I'm trying to almost quote her now, is she realized that she was more assaulted, and she used that word, assaulted by her own thinking patterns than she was from the outer circumstances. When she really saw what was happening with her, she saw that it was her own reactivity to what was happening out there, that caused her suffering. That it was not, you know, of course that's true too, and we can't diminish the power of what happens out there. But her suffering was more due to the assault that her thinking patterns had in relationship to that. And that's what we're going to start practicing in our equanimity practices, really bringing equanimity to those inner patterns which is a really important aspect of developing equanimity. So I'd like to read something from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that gave me a lot of um, relaxation around uh, what I do here, you know, and and what I've chosen to do in, in my life is to offer the Dharma. So he was talking about the eight winds of change when he gave this talk and then he talked about how we, exp- all, we experience all of these, you know, feelings of disapproval, not wanting rejection, feeling disgraced. And he said, even animals probably have those experiences in some slight measure. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example... When I am teaching from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to what I'm saying? Are they going to praise me? Maybe not. Oh, that didn't go so well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, Now that I'm here transmitting these Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected by these eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes and fears and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. Even very pure monks might sometimes harbor a concern in the back of their mind about whether or not people give them a few words of praise. The eight worldly concerns can creep upon us quite stealthily and sneakily and even when we do something virtuous they will try to find a way to slip in i mean i'm i'm not at the height of the dalai lama his holiness but i i feel this way sometimes you know after a dharma talk truth be told i i sometimes you know i lay in bed and i remember what i something i said and i cringe <laughs> and i say oh why did i say that and i'll say i'll have to ask sally tomorrow if she remembered that and what she has to say about that. and It's really something, you know, like, we want to be praised. We don't want to be plain, blamed in a way. And and we want to tell the truth when we're up here too, of course, and say it in, in a way that can be received. So, um, these are, this is the truth of how it is, you know. In this story about the Dalai Lama, we see an example of how we're not affected by the eight by the eight outer conditions, but we're affected also and more often by our own habitual thoughts. By, you know, will they think um, badly of me? Or, you know, there were in the olden times, we, we used to get a lot of notes on the board. Oh, that was a good talk. Or there might be a, why didn't you say this? It would have been better. You know, some things like that were even written about. And in the... In the Days um, back in the day, you know, we used to have these um, praise can and blame can, and so we just, you know, and and then you know we'd want to keep the praise a, a little bit, you know, the praise notes a little bit, but um, and the blame ones we'd want to throw away real quickly. <laughs> um, but nowadays it's like uh, we even don't want to receive any notes. <laughs> um sometimes in some retreats that I attend even here um we don't we don't um, entertain having notes we take the note board down probably some of you know who have been at the retreat that Joseph and I teach we don't want the board up <laughs> anymore so it's like the praise and blame can really get to us you know we we like We like uh, good feedback. And of course that's good too sometimes. But um, we're assaulted by our own inner patterns. So with the outer conditions and the inner conditions, which are mostly unseen or more unseen and unconscious because we're so much more pulled to the outer conditions, the habit patterns are constantly bombarding us. So what's beautiful in... uh, in this kind of place that we can practice in, is we're, we're constantly turning towards what's going on inside and really being honest about it. So it's an important question to answer, to ask an answer for ourselves. How can we stay open and connected to what's going on outwardly and inwardly with a balance so that we can stay centered and with the conditions that are coming up that we see outwardly and we, and we see inwardly too and not be paralyzed by them by them, their bombardment, not try to run away because they're so uncomfortable to be with how can we stay aware and attentive yet compassionate towards ourselves when we feel that sting, when we feel that cringing when we feel places in our hearts that they're just, I call them empty echoes. You know, they're, they're echoes that are kind of bouncing off the walls of our minds and hearts that say the old things that don't even service us anymore. They aren't even, I mean, it isn't even true anymore. But we we still, I mean, here I am, you know, i am I feel loved by a lot of people, and not by everybody, but I feel really loved. And yet, sometimes I feel like I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy, or something like that. And then I, I can recognize sometimes, but not all the time, this is an empty echo. This is something like that came from when I was ten or before. So how many of you can recognize your empty echoes? That's really good. And isn't it in large part due to your practice, right? Your, your ability to have the honesty to look inside yourselves and to really see. So <clears throat> so what we're doing here is learning the skills to explore that inner terrain and really be honest with it. So I come from a Catholic tradition, and um, which I really still honor. I'm not one of those recovering Catholics, but I have compassion for everybody who is. Um, <laughs> I understand. So... Um, this comes from Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And um, I love Mother Teresa. She was very aware of her inner world and her desires and her fears. And so this is a prayer that she wrote. Um, and so in, in that tradition, she's asking help from Jesus. So I'd like to read her, her whole and, and honor, really honor where she's coming from. She says, deliver me O Jesus from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, of being praised, of being preferred, of being consulted. Deliver me O Jesus from the desire of being approved. Deliver me O Jesus from the fear of being humiliated, of being despised, of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten and abandoned, from the fear of being wronged and ridiculed. So I love her humanness, you know, and and her humility has always inspired me to to just be humble about the way it is and honest about the way it is inside. And knowing that the inner terrain it happens the way it happens, but we don't have to be caught by it. So sometimes when I hear those empty echoes, you know, I might just say, "I don't believe you anymore." Sometimes I say that. you know, "I, I don't believe you anymore. It's, I can really just see this kind of these words kind of bouncing against the walls of the mind and the heart. So we need this quality of humility and honesty to navigate this inner terrain of our hearts and minds, as well as the outer terrain of our relationships, and our family, our jobs, the social and global responsibilities and the injustices that occur in, in the world. Recently there was something sent around that you know I felt actually slandered by. And I just, re- I, I, I saw that and I said, it isn't true. I didn't fall for it. So my inner terrain was not shaken by what was said. And later I reflected on that and I thought, well, that, that was good. You know, I could have really reacted in, in a bad way to what was, um, what was written. But I, all I did was I, I felt compassion for, for the one who said that. Um, and it's and also understanding where it could have come from. So we need this quality to navigate the, the world and to really survive and thrive as a human being, where we have a big enough space in our heart and mind to accept all that is going on, to be able to contain it, and say, okay, you know, that doesn't hit me, but I know where it could have hit that other person, and where that other person could have been coming from out of maybe a misunderstanding. So I'm hoping to, you know, clear that up as the best I could. But I'm really glad that I didn't have, um, I wasn't seeing through the veil of, like, hatred or rage or um, being wronged. So Don Juan said to Carlos Castañeda, his uh, teacher, "The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human." You know the wonder part that we can really overcome all of that. And uh, you know, I'm, I say this to you, but I haven't overcome it all. And so I, I just feel passionate about how we are able to, the capacity for us as human beings to overcome all of that. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, and that's the truth of how it is. So in this space of equanimity, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not seeing through the veils of avoiding, ignoring, confusion, aversion, attachment. Instead, there is just being present um, with how things are. There's that spacious balance which can bring about a clarity and a deep connection with ourselves, an ability to be truthful. I remember, um, it was here, I think, a long, uh, a while ago, many years ago, when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was here. And there was, um, he gave a talk to, he met with the the staff, and and I, I wasn't one of the staff. And so, but I, I was told that he, would, he was asked if he still had defilements or hindrances and he said something like, Oh, yes, you know, of course, I'm, I do. And uh, he just admitted it. And it, it was so refreshing to hear that from him, you know, or about him, that he had said that. I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably not exactly saying the way he answered it, but just the, the humility that he had. You know, gave me permission to just do my work with with um, in the offering of the Dharma in the way that I can be honest about, you know, um, as Manindra would say, whenever somebody would point out how he wasn't being, you know, completely virtuous, he would say, "My path is not yet finished." And that was really such a beautiful way to put it. he wasn't He wasn't a completely, you know. Um, purified of all the defilements it wasn't an arahant so it's a just very clear space to see things as they are and then from that place we can come forth with the wisest option to respond instead of um, um, unwise options that we have out of habit so the Buddha would say that for one who develops deep abiding equanimity, this is a quote from the Buddha, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. So it's, it's really powerful. In, when I speak the next time about equanimity in terms of liberation, I'll talk more about that aspect. So one of the everyday common uh, phrases that we use with equanimity is this is how it is right now you know these are the conditions unfolding in this moment and so it's really important there when we offer the equanimity um, uh, practice to you we're going to give you various and many different phrases to use that some will just fit you just right and some you'll have to change to make your own But the basic one in an everyday use is, this is how it is right now. It's um, just kind of taking it all in and realizing, okay, I'm seeing clearly, this is how it is. These conditions are rough outside of me. And they're rough inside of me too. This is the reactivity to the outer condition. And the outer condition is, is not nice either. It's very uncomfortable. And worse than that sometimes. So this is the natural unfolding, as Manindra would say. This is a natural unfolding of the law. That's what the Dhamma means. The natural unfolding of the law, of how things are. Things come about according to nature, according to karma. And... um Sally's going to talk about karma in terms of um, this natural unfolding and in terms of equanimity later on in the retreat because this is a very important part of the understanding of equanimity. I'll I'll tell you the verse now that we use and it'll be filled out more, but one of the main uh, responses, equanimity responses to um, conditions, outer conditions and inner conditions is All beings are owner of their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. So we can't wish things to happen. We really have to train the mind and heart to act in ways that later we can look back and see because we've trained the mind and heart. Yeah, that action, that response came about because of this training of not reacting in habitual ways, but reacting in ways that are wiser. So, um, it's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. This is why I said previously that uh, equanimity is the crown of all the brahmaviharas, because it makes the other ones more powerful in this way that love, that can encompass everything. You know, it's wide, it's big, it's unconditional. It can, it can encompass the loved and the unloved. It can encompass the, um, the, the pleasant and the unpleasant. It can encompass beings that are um, the victims of harm and also the perpetrators of harm yet possess nothing, yet not hold on to how it should be for anybody. I mean, we can see that this is a beneficial way to be and this is an unbeneficial way to be. But we don't have to hate. So it's a very high um, bar for us, this this equanimity. That's why it's called uh, the crown of all all the Brahma-viharas. So I witnessed this very strong and deep unconditional love and steady balance in a a yogi friend of mine. And um, this was happening actually during a retreat on Maui where she was a yogi at that retreat. And she was um, telling me about that particular chapter, episode of what was going on in her life. And she was saying to me um, that the Dharma's teaching on equanimity really helped her through a lot of trying times. So, this is um, her story, and she's given me permission to uh, tell her story. Some years ago now, one of her grown sons, who was in his early 20s, had disappeared. And the family did their best to find out what had happened. They didn't know whether he was still alive or dead or whether he was taken um, by something connected with drugs or he was connected to it. They contacted his friends and uh, no one would say and they just didn't know what was going on. It was, a, it was a horrible time for his mother and his father. And so she held a very deep inner uh, vigil of patience and steadiness for one or two years, and perhaps it was more than that. And um, it was a great loss and mystery, and it was very painful for her, very, very. I'm, I'm a parent. How many of you are parents here? And, and, and we all have parents, so you know, we know how it was for them, with us. Um, and her equanimity phrase was this: "All beings have their own journey. This is her way of saying all beings have their own karma, you know. All beings have their own journey, though we may not know what it is or understand it. And and that's been very important to me in my own journey, you know, to be able to say that in turn in relationship to situations close around myself. That all beings have their own journey, yet we may not understand it or really know what it is. So eventually she and her husband sewed their home. Um, her husband was an architect that beautiful home on the ocean side of, of Maui. And they went as a, as a way to kind of lift their spirits. They went to Asia, through Asia, and then to Europe to visit a daughter who was going to have a baby. And so they thought, well, that, that would be very good, very nice for them. And so... Um they this daughter was about to give birth and it helped them through their sorrow. So just before they left um when they were in Europe after her daughter had given birth her son who had disappeared appeared and he was actually fine or as fine as he could be considering the circumstances I I think he he wasn't ill or he hadn't been in an accident, but I really don't know all the finer details, actually. So, after the experience of loss and being really honest about her sorrow, she never hid her sorrow. She didn't try to look on the surface like, yeah, she was, you know, a meditator, so she was really equanimous and all of that. She really grieved and And she really felt her loss, and she talked about her loss and um so it was then it was great joy for them, you know it was a great gain for them, so she experienced that loss and then the gain, and was able to really hold she said later to hold both you know she 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 was just kind of getting over that loss and then there was this gain and really realized that it's true, there's loss and gain in this life. So she experienced that profoundly and she, um, not long after that, while um, she was still traveling, she got news uh, about her other son that she was closely re- connected with because he was on the Buddhist path he was taking the Shambhala course um, and she was doing that along with him she was in in that tradition Tibetan tradition also and so um, he tragically died in, he drowned in a bathtub and I don't know those conditions um, but there was birth and there was death, right? I mean, just how tragic can you get with the death part? And, the, and so she lost somebody so, so dear to her, uh, of course. And so it was really just, she was a shining example to me of somebody who really did her best to embody equanimity. And yet she was, she was going for it, you know. She, I could see she had the spaciousness to hold both. But, um, you know, she, she told about her sorrow. She held her inner um, sorrow. She was, she was honest about it. And she could be honest about her joy, too. So she could be spacious about that, that immeasurable. She wasn't always impartial, but she was immeasurable about it. She could hold them both, so we met in Oregon. Um, I was finished giving a retreat there, and we had dinner together. And because she was just there for the service of this young, her younger son who had just passed away, and she said she owed her steadiness and her balance to the Dharma. It really saved her kind of her inner life uh, because she she had that equanimity practice. So this is what she wrote. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex, her son, alongside with the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So many principles of ex- equanimity are being expressed here in, in this story of that, that ability to be able to hold both. Just remembering, um, of course, like all mothers and all beings, she still has her challenges. You know, I'm sure she would be truthful about that too. Just as I was going over my notes, I was looking over other ones of other talks of equanimity, and I came across this story I had about my youngest daughter, who's now in her thirties, and um, I told the story of how, when she was graduating from from high school, you know, she came to me, and she was she's a teenager then, of course, and she was at that point. Um, you know, 5'10 or 5'11 already. This, And I remembered that when she was small, you know, I'd be doing my sitting and I'd be nursing her as I was doing my sitting. So she would come in every morning still and she would lay on my lap, you know, when I would do my sitting. And so here was a time, doing my sitting in bed, come lay on my lap, her long legs laying over the bed, And I'd remember the times, you know, and there was one tear coming down which said, oh, no, I'm losing you. You know, you're going away. And the other tear was coming down and was saying, I can't wait. (laughs) You know? (laughs) A tear of joy, like, (laughs) these last few years have been so hard, you know. But, um... Just to be able to hold the joy and, and the sorrow of, of your own children and the ups and downs that they go through, right? <laughs> so, so sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for the heart that's infinitely spacious, the heart that's immeasurably spacious, that it contain all the dualities of the, of the world and diversities of the world. And this is all part of life. Um, it's how it was back in the day of the Buddha, and and it's how it is here. There's there's so many um, hoops that we have to jump through, of so many things that are going on in the world right now: terrorism and the injustices in, of many kinds, and. Um, it's just heartbreaking really. And how do we keep our heart open when it just wants to like, you know, go someplace and hide and and, and not stand up for what's right sometimes because we're tired or we're overwhelmed. And I love this saying by one of our dear um venerable Achans, Achan Sumedo, who says, <clears throat> The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. I like that part. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness too. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So I think those are the real operative words there without uh, being caught in reaction or resistance but rather being in this um, hard and spacious mind of wisdom and compassion that can come through instead of uh, reaction or resistance. So in an experiential way, equanimity uh, can be defined as not being thrown off balance by <clears throat> events beyond our control. We do have influence. We have tremendous, powerful influence over events through our intentions, through our speech, through our actions. There, That can't be diminished or denied. But we don't have complete control. I mean, things are arising in this moment and we can't say, go away, you know. (laughs) They're arising in this moment because of many causes and conditions. Events arise, moments inwardly, moments arise, and we can't push them back in, you know. So we don't have control over what's already arisen or what is arising in this moment. But we do have a a tremendous amount of power over how it can be in the future, by how we respond to the events of this time, to the events of this moment, to the events of the past that are still being lived out. You know, the the, um, ways that are still living on because they haven't um, been acted upon wisely. And so what can we do about that? How can we change the future? We can by the way we respond to this moment, by the way we respond to this inner moment and to the outer events of the world. So we can change the world, we can change ourselves. We may not be able to change the whole world, but we're able to change what's happening inside in relationship to the outer conditions. So it's how we respond to the events, how we respond to the events of our lives. We can refrain into rushing into a reaction out of compulsion, out of hatred, out of an uninvestigated judgment about someone or something. And we can take time to understand, this is real freedom. This is the freedom of choice that we have. The choice to not rush in or to get even. Or to not make a stand out of, you know, kind of, we we say we're being passionate, but we're really scaring people away by our rage. And, you know, so really being truthful with how it is for how we are acting in the world. We have the freedom to make that choice. And this is what Martin Luther King was talking about when he talked about freedom. The freedom to make that choice to change for change. So it's not just letting the old habit patterns take place. And I heard somebody say, you can do something in an instant that will give you a heartache for a lifetime, right? Because we're really not looking at it clearly or making the right choice. So as I engage in the various facets of my own life, I ask myself, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes and making the right choices? And I, you know, I don't always do the right thing also. I I act out of compulsion too. I just, pooh, boom, sometimes. And um, sometimes uh, my, my colleagues get really... Uh, I don't know if shocked the word, or actually, I don't know if I should say this and have it on Dharma but Seed. <laughs> but one of our very senior colleagues says he gets tickled when I say a swear word because <laughs> he's not expecting it to come out of my mouth, you know. Because I, I do get like, poof, sometimes, you know. Um, so... We need to get the Dharma duct tape and put it when, you know, put it on us sometimes and say, oh, better not say that word. It might make the wrong impression out there. So we do have reactivity, of course. So the opposite of equanimity is the far enemy. It's called the far enemy because we can see it from afar. The direct opposite is called reactivity. And it comes in two parts. Uh, it's aversion to the unpleasant, whether it's the inner unpleasant or the outer unpleasant, or attachment to the pleasant. You know, we we want things to be our way because it's pleasant when it's our way. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. So we get attachment to that. We get sometimes righteously um, attached to it. Or we have aversion to how it is. So... <clears throat> In our training here, we're learning how to recognize that more clearly. So before it comes out of our mouths or into our action, we can make the right choice and maybe sometimes refrain from saying what we were going to say. Or to think about it first and say it in a different way. And to maybe say it in a way that can be better received by who we're offering that to. So those are our choices, you know, to um, wait and then to say it at the right time or to say it in a in a different tone of voice or to say it with different words. Um, so then we have a more truthful connection with what's going on and a connection with people that maybe they can are able to receive it better um, I know when I'm in a in a place of more steadiness and strength and spacious balance then people are more willing to receive what I have to say I don't know who quoted this um, I have to learn maybe Sally will tell me that the spiritual path is one humiliation after another <laughs> I don't remember I'll look it up So Manindra used to say all the time, you know, really you have to be able to um, see things as they are, to surrender to the law of how things are. The law is the Dhamma, to be able to really see the outer conditions with truthfulness and see the inner conditions with truthfulness. And then be able to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. So the extreme is either um, the aversion to what's going on or the attachment to what you think should go on. So um, this is my own story. And this comes from, you know, I had read and taken in this saying by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In that state of mind of equanimity. You can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. So, one time I was having this, um, uh, this very strong conversation with someone. We were both kind of heated up. It was um, actually the neighbor, and um, there was, you know, emotions that were kind of getting fired up, and each one was trying to make our case. And um, I noticed how strongly this person felt about the situation. And so I, I inclined my mind to equanimity. And I recognize, okay, this is the way it is for her right now. And so in recognizing the outer experience, I said, okay, this is the way it is for her right now. And I recognize that. And to recognize that, instead of saying, "Oh, she's you know she's all fired up, she's reacting," I just said, "This is the way it is for her right now." Because actually, I was that way too. I could recognize <laughs> that in myself, so I could make room for that. And um, I wanted to be able to really get real about the whole thing. I didn't feel totally balanced myself. So just by habit, I turned my attention towards what was going on inside of me and I realized, oh, this is how it is too. Yeah, I had to recognize that. So I said to her, I think I'll stop right now because I'm really not coming from the clearest place and maybe we can talk about this later. And so she said to me, Yes, that's true. You're not coming from a very clear place right now. So it's like, oh boy, I had to get the Dharma duct tape out and put it... You know, I was ready for one of those words that people kind of get surprised that I would get would come out of my mouth. So that's the far enemy is reactivity. And we have to watch that inside So in our practice, we're going to learn how to always take a two-step thing, to bring equanimity to the outer conditions and also bring equanimity to the inner condition, the reactivity which we normally have to the outer condition. So now that's the far enemy and the near enemy, which is called the near enemy or <clears throat> the, uh, direct, the indirect enemy is because it feels like equanimity. It's, it feels, um, it's really a kind of disconnection. It's called indifference or apathy. And it feels really apart from what's going on. It's not a good state of mind. This is not a wholesome state of mind, apathy or indifference. And so when we see that, it feels like there's an emotional emptiness. It's like we don't feel anything at all. Sometimes people say that they just feel dull inside. So this, you know, this apathy and indifference we talked about in the um, uh, far enemy. There's the reactivity of attachment and aversion. Well, in this part, the near enemy, the, this apathy and indifference is really fed by delusion and ignorance. So there you have, you know, the three poisons. So it can feel like an emotional distancing. It can be an avoidance of some, you know, some people, even in the Dharma, we can be highly avoidant, you know, of of things that are happening that we really need to pay attention to. So there's a kind of coldness, and I-don't-careness or an aloofness that we feel. These are all ways that we can sense that inner terrain. Sometimes there's a resignation or a helplessness. All of these can occur. Uh, We may think we're really balanced, but it's really apathy or indifference. So really check that part out in yourselves. The practice is to be honest. This is the way it is right now in my heart, and really name it sometimes. If you can. So, apathy, that's the uh, near enemy, and far enemy is that reactivity which has two parts. So, it really takes time to look inside and be clear about what's going on. I mean, and, and it doesn't mean that we just have to, you know, connect and be there with it and not make boundaries. It doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes people think equanimity is. You you just get stepped on, you know. You just allow yourself to be a foot wiping rag, you know. But that's not true at all. And one of my closest friends, she's a translator, and she has a lot of she has a lot of duties in the Tibetan tradition. And she sometimes we meet, and she's told me once because I take up a lot too in the Dharma. She says, Kamala, remember your boundaries, and remember that. No is a complete sentence you know, just to make that no can't do it. you know that's a boundary that so um, i want I took this course once in model mugging does that, do any of you know who's who's taken that it's It's where you learn how to if if you're attacked, you learn how to really fight it. You you learn how to really protect yourself. And I took it because my thir- I took my 13 year old daughter, the one who had the two tear I had the two tears about. And so that was really important for me to take. And um, so I want to give you an example of equanimity and action. And um, because I don't want you to go away thinking that equanimity is all, oh, just being nice, you know, and all of that and being a foot rag. So I was going to a shopping center to buy some things, some gifts for our staff one time, who was doing a retreat on Maui. And actually I was with a Buddhist nun. And we were walking into the entranceway, and um, on the far end, kind of like where the uh, the end of this building is here, and the inside of the building, there was a um, a man who rushed towards, towards, a young man who rushed towards another young man and started pummeling him. And it seemed like the the one young man was either too weak or too, I don't know, What he had ingested, if he had ingested anything, but he was just kind of down on the ground, and the other man was just um, very strongly beating him up. And so everybody was walking by, and here I am, you know, the the Dharma person, right, (laughs) and uh, and the nun too, (laughs) the Dharma person next to me, and I was and I was watching, and nobody was doing anything, nobody was saying anything; they were just passing by. And so I was. I learned in this um, model mugging course that you you yell as loud as you can if somebody's gonna hurt you or somebody's gonna hurt somebody else, right? Remember that yelling? So I yelled as loud as I could, and the nun next to me was like, "Whoa," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I yelled, "Get somebody help! Help! Stop it! Stop it! Stop that guy!" You know. So I won't yell now, but I was yelling at the top of my lungs to stop that. And so then somebody came by, a security guard came by and took them apart. And the young man who was pummeling the other started rushing in this way. I was coming in, so he was going out. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, better get away. you know. So I kind of ran in another direction. Um, So you're wise, right? You don't stay in the way of danger. But if you are in danger or somebody else is in danger, it took a lot of equanimity and making the choice and saying something's got to be done do it and you make the choice and you do what you do so sometimes it means yelling as lo- as loud as you can to do that so equanimity is one of the most powerful factors in the development of liberating wisdom I'll talk about that later and it's a the most powerful of these four Brahma-viharas. And it allows that balance and that even-mindedness to come about. Um, so you have to have that to be able to do what you need to do in life. So, <clears throat> to end, I'd like to uh, give a vision of that I hold. It's a strong memory of what it was like for me to experience a visit to um, with my teacher to Varanasi in India many years ago, and um, and this was about a boat trip that we took uh, down the Ganges River. So it was the last day of my being there with him, and he was elderly then, and I thought I might never get to see him again. But I fortunately I did before he died, and. Um, he wanted to take me and and the other people that were in our two other women that were traveling with me on a boat ride down the down the ganges because it was right near the burning ghats and as a dharma teacher you know one of the things that he wanted me to be able to behold are the bodies that were being burned and um on the side of the river and because that's a powerful teaching and And also, he even said, "Well, maybe we'll even see a body floating down the river." I mean, he said that with some delight, actually, that that would be a good thing, you know, to to show your student. Um, and so we were we took the boat, and it was um before dawn. and um, on the banks of the river, uh, it was a very clear morning, and I could see on one side, uh, where we went close, there were these bodies under these pyres of wood, and they were burning in all different stages, and so there was death, right on that side, and on this side the sun was coming up over the horizon, and so this great ball of new light and a new dawn was happening, and so there's here's this birth of a new day, and on this side there's you know the death of all these beings. And then uh, there's these, uh, you know, people who were sad because of the death of their loved ones here on this side. And yet, you know, I was sitting next to my teacher and he was holding my hand because he's kind of like a father, a grandfather to me. So um, I felt like the joy... Uh, and the gratitude of having, you know, they say one of the greatest joys is to have a teacher. So it's what, it was wonderful, you know, to be able to have that. So there's joy and sorrow. And then um, there's also the, you know, the rawness of India, right? How many of you have been to India? So you know, it's isn't it beautiful in its rawness? You've been to India too? God, okay, great. It's a great teaching just to be there mm-hmm. so that there's a rawness of it. And there's, a, there's such beauty in that rawness also, what you face, you know, to see this is how it is. So for the mind and heart to be able to hold those two things, the beauty, and also th- there's, there was a lot of rawness that I could describe it in other ways, too. almost as the opposite of beauty, you know, it wasn't ugliness, it was raw. Just really like how life is. And it was a great teaching to me. So the ability to hold both of those things in my heart and to, to, to know this is how life is. It contains all of that. The beauty and the rawness and the happiness and the sorrow and the birth and the death and, um, all of that. So this is how it is in in our lives. So I'd like to end with this beautiful poem by um, William Stafford, and it actually comes from the book The Way It Is, his book of poems, and it's called A Gift. Time wants to show you, us, a different country, It's the one that your life conceals. The one waiting outside when curtains are drawn. The one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design. The one almost found over the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is, and you have it. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been, and how people and weather treated you. It's a county where you already are, bringing you where you have been. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning, here, take it, it's yours. So let's sit for a moment and and let those words dissolve and the purity of the meaning remain. thank you for your kind attention and we have 20 minutes for walking so um, then coming back and doing our metta chant together thank you